Good morning. Good morning. Wow, good sound. So here I am at the North Campus, the Holy Grail of preaching assignments. I'm excited. We uh, talk about the North Campus all the time. We love you guys. Um, in family ministries, of course, so many of our families have come up here and your children's ministry is doing such an excellent job. It is so cool, your commitment to families. I, I love the fact that the kids are part of the service for a time and all those kind of things. So greetings to you from Central Campus. Um, this morning, as Josh has already said, we're going to be looking in Habakkuk chapter 3, if you want to open up your Bibles to that uh, section of Scripture. How many of you have ever heard sermons before in Habakkuk before we started this series? Right. Well, hold on. Amos is coming next week, right? So we're going to be walking through some of these guys, and it's going to be great because, uh, you know, you're going to be able, when you go to any other kind of Christian gathering, just kind of drop a Habakkuk quote in there now and then or some allusion to him. This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 3, which is a little bit unusual for the rest of the book. It's unique in a sense. I was listening uh, online just this past week to Doug Schillinger preaching through the first chapter uh, on Central Campus, and Doug started off by saying, hey, uh, you know, in our men's group, like on Tuesday mornings at Fight Club and so forth, we go around sometimes, and he talked about challenging the men to share, what's the biggest injury you've ever had? I mean, what are, how have you biffed it more than any other time in your life? And he makes them all share just some of those things, and you can imagine with a group of men, it could get rather gross at times, and uh, he, he said that uh, Chris uh, won the contest because he talked about working on a bridge crew and falling and having rebar go up through his forearm and just hanging there, you know, and he so, so we were all like, oh, you're the master, but then he shared, like I think the next week, that actually a better one in that he was out fishing, and as he was casting, the hook came back and hit his eye and just kind of penetrated the cornea a little bit and took it out. Now, I'm sitting there listening to this in my office, and I'm thinking, for real? <laughs> That's nothing. <laughs> Let's go to the bow and arrow accident, all right? You know. So those of you who know me, you know that I lost my right eye as a kid in a bow and arrow accident. So I'm going to start going to fight club just so I can have some bragging rights <laughs> somewhere. But really, as you look at this, one of the things that hit me as I'm looking at Habakkuk is it's not so much about accidents. This is not a book about bad things that happen to good people. This is a book about judgment. It's God coming to us and saying, you know, I have this against you. It's not just that I walked in front of a tree that my best friend Dave was shooting an arrow at, and I just turned my head perfectly with the timing, or imperfectly, if you will, and pow, you know, it split my optic nerve and back, went to the hospital, and all the stuff. You get all the greeting cards, people come see you, all this kind of stuff, and that's all good. That's all good. However, it's not what this book is about. This is not happening by accident. This is not happening just because you are in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is God saying, I am specifically directing this judgment upon your head right now 
at this place, at this time. And Habakkuk knows it. Now, sometimes we do this as Christians, don't we? We have things happen to us and we're thinking, oh my goodness, what did I do against God? Why is he doing this to me? But that's not always the case. Accidents do happen. In his sovereign control, he can use those to demonstrate something from his will uh, that we should learn, that we should change in our lives. Uh, just like he does when good things happen, right? Uh, another time, uh, I was in youth ministry in Nebraska, and we were moving a great upright piano from our main church building over to a chapel that we use for high school ministry. And so we had several guys, we loaded this big upright into the truck, and I got up in the back, because I'm stupid, and I volunteered to hold on to it so that it didn't go rolling in the back of the pickup. Now, the other dumb thing I did was let my friend Jimmy drive the truck, <laughs> because he thought this was gonna be a fun trip. And as we're going around a corner, he decided that he would gun it and spin the wheel as quickly as he could, not realizing that that piano is rushing towards me, that foot and a half, and I can feel the back of the pickup walls on the back of my knees, and I know I'm going over, and very likely with a whole piano on top of me. The next thing I know, we're about three-fourths of the way down the next block, and I'm still standing here. An angelic moment? I say, yeah, because <laughs> I should have been on that street. I should have been falling backwards, conking my head on cement, having a piano fall on me, but I give God the credit for that, right? It wasn't my time yet. He probably still has that particular experience yet to come in my life, right? Habakkuk is sitting here, as we learned in chapter one, and he is angry. He's telling God, Lord, what are you doing? How come you're not listening to our prayers? Why is this happening to us? And if you remember chapter one and two, it's basically God coming back to him saying, this is not an accident. Babylon is coming down and they have plans for you. They're not nice plans. And this is because you deserve it. And what we learn is that in the Old Testament, there's this cycle that's continuously happening, right? We have disobedience, we have judgment, and we have restoration. And we see this all through scripture, especially the Old Testament. Disobedience, say it with me. Disobedience, judgment, restoration. One more time like you really care what I'm saying. <laughs> Disobedience, judgment, restoration. And we see that over and over, don't we? Yeah, you know, the, the, the humans that God created, they're in rebellion. They're not doing what the Lord wants. God's wrath bursts out. He says to Noah, build a boat. You're going to want it. And so he has disobedience. The judgment is everyone's going to die in a flood. The restoration is, oh, except for one family. I'm going to put you on a boat with all the animals, and I'm going to make sure that you're around for the next round of my famous acts in the world. And that happens, right? Uh, the children of Israel are coming out with Moses, and they've been in Egypt and for a period of that time, they've been in slavery. It's not been very easy, right? They've kind of forgotten their God. And the way we know this is because when Moses comes and says, hey, God has a word for you, what's their response? Uh, no, I don't think so. God has forgotten us. 
This labor is so hard, we've long ago given up on him. And, and Moses, through a series of plagues, reveals to them one God after other Egyptian God, after another Egyptian God, they have no power, they have no strength, certainly not in the face of Jehovah God. And eventually he leads them out of the land, disobedience, judgment, and then he's going to restore them. However, when they get to the wilderness, they continue on in their stubborn ways. Now they have to go through a whole nother cycle. Disobedience, the children of Israel came to play while Moses on Mount Sinai. Aaron helps them create the golden calf, an idol designed to look like and to respond to them as an Egyptian god whom God just delivered them from. And then judgment, right? All kinds of judgment. But ultimately he says this, great. You don't want my promised land? You don't want to behave? You're going to die right here. The restoration comes for their children. And this goes on through the Davidic kingdom, through the Solomonic kingdom, king after king after king. We see the same cycle. Disobedience, judgment, restoration. Disobedience, justice, or judgment, restoration. We get to Habakkuk. We see the same cycle. There is a big wrinkle of difference here. Okay? We have disobedience. The children of Israel have pursued the gods of Canaan. The ones that God said do not pursue in Deuteronomy, right? In Judges, in Joshua, uh, everywhere in the Old Testament. He says, I am a jealous God. I am Jehovah, the creator of the universe. I am Yahweh. I am Elohim. I am the one who provides for you. And still the children of Israel, despite the fact that they have been restored over and over and over, elect to stay disobedient. And by the time we get to Habakkuk's era, 600 years before Christ, God has had enough. And so this time we have disobedience, we have judgment, and this is what's killing Habakkuk. He's not seeing restoration. He's repenting. The people around him are repenting. They're saying to God, okay, we've been disobedient. But we're not like the northern ten tribes of Israel that you sent the Assyrians after, and they're now gone, and it's just left you know, us, Judah, and, 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 and our whole clan here, and we have nothing, and the Babylonians are coming, the Egyptians are coming from the south, there's big battles, we don't really have a king anymore, we have this puppet king, Jeconiah, and he's not doing anything righteous. Uh, but there are some of us who have repented, God, and we come to you in faithfulness and we sing songs and we sing hymns and we study your word the best that we can do. Where's the restoration? That's basically the questions of chapter 1 and 2. Where is the restoration? We just don't get it. And God charges in there. He's not gentle. He's not kind. This book is not a book to read to your kids before bedtime. Okay? This is God saying, enough. I've had enough. And he basically says this, I'm using the Babylonians to discipline you, even you who are faithful. And you're not going to see the end of it. Basically, this is my decision, this is my will. If you want in parental terms, it's a because I said so moment. Right? He's saying this is going to happen. And Habakkuk, there really isn't any parachute for you. You're not going to be able to bail out. There's not going to be an ark. 
There's not going to be a Red Sea dividing. There's not going to be a, just a, a quick judgment and a restoration of the kingdom. This is it. This is the end. And Habakkuk, he's first angry, and then he's very sad. He's angry, and then he's sad. And he writes this all out in the book, in his oracle, the book of Habakkuk. God uses these prophets in amazing ways. These men that come and tell his people what they need to hear, even when they don't want to hear it. He tells kings, even when they don't want to listen. You remember Isaiah stripping down to his underwear and walking through Jerusalem for three years to get people's attention? Thus says the Lord. Do you remember God saying to Hosea, another prophet, you go marry a prostitute, a woman of ill repute. Treat her like you would a pure virgin of Israel. She will bear you children, but she will never be faithful. As a picture of how Israel had not been faithful to God. And eventually Hosea has to redeem her for the price of someone who has no value, who has been sold into sex slavery. But he takes her back and he is ordered to restore her. And the only question remains, when? God of Gomer, and that was his wife's name. Isn't that a great name? Any of you married to a Gomer? My wife would say she's married to a Gomer. <laughs> anyway, he says, when is that restoration going to happen? And God doesn't really answer him. He just promises him it will. Jonah sent to Nineveh, a totally pagan nation, right? On the way, because of his disobedience, he has to deep dive into a fish. He gets vomited up on the shores of Assyria. What's, what are you going to look like after three days in a fish? The acidic content of that fish is going to burn off your eyebrows, your hair. You're going to smell, maybe have some seaweed hanging on you, you know, little bits of turtle and tuna popping out of your toga. I don't know. But it got their attention, right? He started preaching repentance. They repented. God uses these guys in amazing ways. It's something else. Daniel gets taken away right after the time of Habakkuk to Babylon. And while there, he has to make a stand for God. What does God do? Has him thrown in a pit full of hungry lions just to get the attention of an arrogant, proud leader of a nation. What's God calling you to today? God is looking at our nation. He's looking at our community. He's looking at the people here, and he wants witnesses for him. God is calling people. But that doesn't mean that we escape God's judgment. Not always. And so by the time we get to chapter 3, Habakkuk has made peace with this idea that he's going down with the ship. Jeremiah does the same thing. They're contemporaries. But let's, let's open up to chapter 3 take a look here. Chapter 3 starts off with just a simple title, A Prayer of Habakkuk the Prophet. All right, this is just his prayer. This is going to be a psalm, just like the psalms that David wrote, Solomon wrote, Asaph wrote. It's a, it's a song. Most people think that Habakkuk had some role as possibly a, a musician in the court or in the temple. He knew music. And so he is going to write a psalm for them and give them some insight into um, what God's ideas are here. And it starts off with verse 2. Verse 2 is the refrain of the chorus. It is that which is repeated after each section. Now, if you notice in your Bible, so like I have in mine, there is the word sila. The Hebrew 
uh, notification to the musicians that this is a break, right? This is a concept, this is the idea, and then there's a break. Now, Habakkuk kind of turns this around. His sila is at the beginning of each of the uh, verses. But in verse 2, we have this rephrase, and he wants us to repeat it after each one of those. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your words. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. There's three things that Habakkuk is saying in the repetition of this chorus. First of all, he says, O Lord, Jehovah, God. Despite the fact that God's judgment is coming and that Habakkuk and those that he loves are going to be part of it, he chooses to submit to God. God, this is your world. This is not my life. This is your life. If you want this to happen to me, fine. Now remember, this is not an accident. This is not a coincidence. This is not just the normal course of life. This is God's judgment. And Habakkuk knows it. And he just says, God, I'm going to humble myself and say, oh Lord, let's do it. I have heard the report of you. Some of you might have an NIV in front of you and it says, I know the fame. I know your fame, the report of you. The world knows about it. And he says, and I rejoice in it. In the midst of the years, make your fame known. Yeah, it's something that Habakkuk wants to see happen, is that Jehovah's name is, is pronounced all over the world. Now remember, when is, or Judah is carried away to Babylon, everything goes with it. The artifacts in the temple, those things they use to spurn on uh, their, their worship, and it gets laid at the feet in their temple to Dagon, their pagan god, right at the feet. And along with all of the uh, Jehovah artifacts are artifacts from all the other peoples that the Babylonians have conquered. This was a demonstration that their God was more powerful than the God of Israel. And so they laid that there and just said, there you go. And Habakkuk is saying, God, it doesn't matter what happens to any of this stuff. You're still God. You're famous. You are more powerful than Dagon. You're more powerful than any other god, the god of the Phoenicians, the god of uh, the Philistians, and so forth. Next week when we get into Amos, there's going to be condemnations against each of these nations. But God, that's the fame of it. And he ends this refrain by saying, in your wrath, please have mercy. In your wrath, remember that you're a merciful God. Habakkuk can't be blamed for that. I do that. When I've been disciplined by the Father, that is my first impulse, is to say, God, please be merciful. I hear you. I understand what you're saying. It's time to let up, right? I'm, I can't take any more. Please be merciful. That doesn't mean things are going to go the way I want it to go. It's just my simple prayer. Who else do we see praying like that? Can you think back to a story? I, I just, it just instantly reminds me of King David, right, with his sin with Bathsheba. And that little baby is born, and instantly God in his judgment, because it's an adulterous relationship born out of murder, he says this little baby's not going to live. What's David's response? He's going to put on sackcloth, he's going to sit by himself and fast and pray, 
And he's saying, God, please spare this baby. And then it says in the word that the servants come in and all this, offer him food. And all of a sudden, David says, yeah, I'll have breakfast today. And they're amazed. So why are you eating today, sire? And David says, well, the baby has died. While the baby was alive, there was a chance that God might have had mercy. Even though he chose that he didn't, that was his prayer. What a great example for us. Hebrews 12 tells us that everyone that God loves, if you're truly his child, you at some point are going to experience his discipline. Why? Because we're sinful, fallen people. We don't stand righteously before him. And there are things that we bring into our relationship with Jesus Christ that don't belong with him. They're part of who we were, not part of who we should be. And God uses discipline, suffering, if you will, as sanctifying moments in our lives to change us, to mold us, to flip our attitudes, to change our behavior. And in the midst of that, if you wish to pray, God, please show mercy, he may show mercy. But it may still have the consequence, the desire that he wants in your life. And Habakkuk is experiencing that. So as you read through chapter 3, take that verse 2 and just put it at the end of each section. Now the title for the first section is in verse 3, which is a little different from the other Psalms, right? He says, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his peace. Selah. So that's the title. And he's going to run that down. If you take your finger and you go over to the next Selah, you'll see that verse 9 introduces the next section. So the first section is just verses 3 through 8. And basically, Habakkuk is remembering the God of Israel. When things were good, oh, how wonderful it was. You know, when he established us as a nation, when he moved us from the Egyptians, when he established David as his man, when he upset all of the surrounding nations and we had power, then God showed himself to be who he was. Looking at verse 4, his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands and there is veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Everybody trembled at the sight and sound and the rumor of Jehovah. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. And you can go on and read that first section. Do you remember God? I do, says Habakkuk. To his people, they had forgotten. He's writing this as a prophet because the people have forgotten how wonderful God used to be. Remember in the few kings back with Josiah, the people had forgotten the law altogether. It was because of a simple house cleaning chore that they found the law buried somewhere and brought it forth and had it read in the court of the king. And Josiah then hearing the words of the law was just, it just clarified things for him. This is why God has not been blessing us because we have not been obedient. And he ordered a nationwide revival. We are going to go back to the worship of Jehovah like our ancestors. Habakkuk is basically saying the same thing. We have forgotten our God, but I haven't. I'm reminding you that. The next section, like I said, starting in verse 9, this is the title. You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. And then that next section goes all the way down to verse 12. Fairly short one. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. 
It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place as the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. Uh, Man, great stuff. You marched through the earth in fury and threatened the nations in anger. Yeah, God may be using Babylon. They're going to come down and they're going to destroy everything we know. And it wasn't pretty. Historically, we know that when the Babylonian Empire came to any nation, but specifically to Israel, because even though they had conquered Israel once already and set up a puppet king, that king decided to try to woo Egypt, the pharaoh, to come to their assistance. That made the Babylonians very angry. These are not a good people to make angry. So when they come in this last time, as was their, their way of doing things, they would kill, they would torture, they would destroy. And they carried off the cream of the crop, as we know, of those who were potentially leaders that they could Babylonianize back home, like Daniel and his friends, and then send back in as representatives of Babylon, but genetically they were Jewish, right? But Habakkuk is saying to his people, don't worry about this. We may see some of this stuff happening, but God is powerful. Do you remember when his arrows broke the enemy, his spears stabbed the enemy? He is still that God. That's what this psalm is all about. Let's remember the Lord. The next section, the last one, uh, that's part of the verse, uh, begins in verse 13 when he says, You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. That's the title. Now he's going to tell Habakkuk what he's doing. You you pierced with his own arrows the heads of the warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And again, God is saying, I can take care of the Babylonians. I'm using them for now, but they're going to come under judgment. And we see this happen. The Babylonians don't last a long time after the time period where they take Judah back home, right? Daniel, in just his lifetime, how many different governments does he see come through and actually own Babylon, even though they're not Babylonian, right? We've got the the Medo-Persians and so forth. God's going to take care of this. God never uses something in your life to discipline you that's not of him and let it stand on its own. He will always choose to have the primary place in your heart and life. He wants you to understand who he is and never lose sight of that. No matter how bad our circumstances, but really our discipline gets, God hasn't forgotten us. That's Habakkuk's message. God hasn't forgotten us. He's going to wrap this up, starting in the next verse, verse 16, and through the end of the chapter. And there's going to be four lessons that Habakkuk seems to be pushing forward. In verse 16, he says this, I hear, and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of the trouble to come upon people who invade us. The first thing that Habakkuk is trying to say to us is that even in the midst of God's judgment upon us, let's not lose faith. Going back to Hebrews 2, or excuse me, Habakkuk 2.4, remember that classic phrase, 
the righteous shall live by faith. Paul requotes that in Romans chapter 1, encouraging us to have that attitude no matter what you're going through today, be it illness, be it you know, uh, conflict, whatever it is you're going through, live by faith. And he's basically saying, God, I hear you. As a man who goes through your judgment, I am responding with the commitment that I will always live by faith. Now Habakkuk may not have known this, but the exile to Babylon, he would never see the return. He's not going to be one of those that sees the restoration, right? That happens under Nehemiah and Ezra. It's going to take 70 years before that happens. And Habakkuk and the friends that he have, they're going to die. They're going to die sitting by the canals of Babylon, remembering the good old days. But he says, Habakkuk, go and live by faith. And Habakkuk's response is, yes, even in the midst of your judgment, I will live by faith. The question is, can you live by faith while dying as much as you can live by faith while living? And Habakkuk's response is in this psalm, yes, I can and I will. That's faith. That's trust. There are times when I've been with people and they're dying. I get to be with them in the hospital. Sometimes older people who have been fighting with a disease for years. And the time comes for them to say goodbye. To just close their eyes. I love it when I hear their testimony. I love it when they just get that smile on their face. And you know that they know they're going to go into the presence of God. There isn't that despair. There isn't that anger as I see in some people, but there's trust, there's hope. I am going in the presence of God. There have been times, just like with Dwight Moody, the famous evangelist, where sometimes God reveals himself to us just as we are dying and passing. I think the thing here for us is not to overcome God's judgment, but is to stay faithful to him no matter what our circumstances. Let's look at the next verse, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stable. What's, what's Habakkuk describing here? He's describing a time of need, a famine, poverty, feeling poor, not having any property. He's getting carried off to a foreign land, probably. And every meal that he gets is going to be at the, the will of people that hate him. They don't own anything anymore. The principle here for Habakkuk is that even in scarcity, I'm going to trust God. Even in scarcity, I'm going to trust God. Paul says the same thing, right, in Philippians. I've learned what, to have riches and to be poor, to abound and to abase. I, I don't need all the things that this world says that I need. But specifically, just because we're experiencing scarcity doesn't mean that we're under God's judgment. But when we are experiencing scarcity because of God's discipline, then we have to own it. And God is saying, don't worry, I'm still supplying your needs. And Habakkuk says, I will always be faithful to you, even when things are scarce even when I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills, 
even when I have people calling me wanting to collect, even when I can't see how I'm going to live, God is there. He's in the midst, and the righteous shall live by faith. The third thing that Habakkuk wants us to understand is found in the next verse. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy to the God of my salvation. Now, if you're just reading this book, let's say you're having devos in the morning, and somehow uh, you got lost and you wound up in the book of Habakkuk, and you read that, you're like, yeah, I'm going to rejoice. Put yourself, if you can, this morning back into the most dire moment of your life where you really felt like God had deserted you. He had left you. I don't know how we can do that very well, but I I think of our, our Savior in Matthew when he's tempted in the wilderness and he's experienced that scarcity, right? He's fasting, no food, no water, 40 days, and the evil one comes to him and says, why don't you just turn these rocks into bread. I know you can do that. And Jesus says, no, I will be faithful. Man does not live by bread alone, right? In the original uh, Old Testament quotation that Jesus is quoting when he says that, it's a little closer to man doesn't need anything that God hasn't provided. Think about that. Can we rejoice when things aren't going our way, when we feel God's discipline upon us, can we, as Habakkuk is encouraging us in verse 18, say, God, in you is the joy of my salvation. That shows you how disparate joy and happiness are. They're not the same thing. We're not happy all the time, but we need to be joyful all the time, even in the worst circumstances. When I was a kid, like I told you, I lost my right eye. In 1995, uh, I had something happen. I was just going about life, and all of a sudden, my good eye, I felt like a window shade just went. And I was like, what was that? It was just bright white light. And I, you know how that happens, and you're trying to tell yourself, ah, that's nothing. A couple days later, same thing. So I go to the eye doctor, and of course, it's a retinal tear. Now, if you're already missing one eye, a retinal tear will send you into absolute fear. You know, like, oh my goodness, you know. So I get sent to Omaha, where they have laser surgery people. They do the job, seems to work, fine. I still get reminders, there's white spots all the time. Then, once I'm living here in Iowa, a few years back, I go in for my normal routine exam at the retinal center, same thing. Guy says, oh, your retina's torn again. Now it's getting really scary. And I don't know what God's doing. But I remember going home at night, laying in bed, and it should have been dark in my bedroom. But because of this crazy stuff, you know, I'm seeing lights and spottedness and stuff. And those are harbingers of possible blindness coming on. Now, as a pastor, I make my living by reading, right? By understanding the text and resources. This means the end of that kind of life. I'm not built to be a farmer. I'm not a car repairman. I'm not an executive. I don't know what else to do. And for a period there, I'm just struggling with God, saying, God, why are you doing this? Look look at how faithful I am. I'm a pastor. I work with people, right? I'm a children's pastor. I put up with your kids. 
This should count for something. And I just remember after I kind of shut up and got real quiet, I just felt like God was saying to me, Dave, even in the darkness, I'm with you. Even in the darkness, I'm with you. And from that moment on, I've never feared it. It's not like I'm a great guy or a super spiritual man. It's just that I, have, I just got that word from him. And I realized that there's nothing that we can experience. There's no discipline that we can endure that God isn't with us. That's what Habakkuk is saying to us. Have joy, even in the midst of that moment. Lastly, verse 19, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Have the ability to see what God is doing is his fourth encouragement to us. Don't get wrapped up in just keeping your eyes down here in the midst of your troubles, but look up like the deer on the mountain. See who he is, the creator, the sustainer, the provider, the protector. God is good. God is great. God is gracious, right? God is glorious. There are times when I get so bogged down in my life, my work, that I have to go outside for a while. And when God directs me, I look at those clouds and I look at his sky and somehow it changes my perspective entirely. And I praise him for that. I thank that he has not left me. I have the faith to believe that because he's telling me that in every way he can. He tells me that through my wife, through my kids. He tells me that through my job. He tells me through the fact that I get to get up every day and worship him. What a privilege. That's what it means to walk in the Lord. Habakkuk is saying, listen, this is the worst day of my life and it doesn't get better. I don't know how much of that he understood at this moment when he's writing, but it didn't get better. That cycle of disobedience, judgment, and restoration. It, disobedience, there was judgment. He never saw the restoration. But he had the faith to believe it was coming. And for the sake of our biblical theology, when did that restoration come? And you, you might be tempted to say when Nehemiah, and, and he, he's the cupbearer, and he goes to the king and says, hey, I want, I, I'm feeling sad because my people are out of their land and they need to go back and there's a temple to be rebuilt and, and so forth. And we say, yay, they're restored. But that's not really the case. That was just a partial, possible restoration. Maybe it was just designed as an encouragement from God. But the truth is, the restoration didn't come through 400, 500, in Habakkuk's time, 600 years when in a stable, a little baby is born, right? Israel really hadn't heard as a national community from God for this time period. And this little baby is born, and who sees it? Who receives him? Who is ready to say, this is the Messiah? No one. In fact, they nail him to a cross, right? And that's why you and I are here. Because the nation of Israel, according to Paul in Romans 11, was disobedient to God. They got arrogant. They decided they liked other gods. And God says, you know what I'm going to do? 
I'm going to fulfill my promise, and I'm going to take the peoples of the world, the Gentiles, and they are going to respond to me. I'm going to restore them. And to be truthful, Israel is still waiting in some ways for that restoration. And Paul says this for us as Gentiles. Don't get cocky. If he will do this to his chosen people, who do you think you are? Be faithful. Be obedient. Praise him. He will, according to Hebrews, discipline us. We have to go through suffering just like the Son of Man did in order to produce righteousness. But in that, have faith. And the righteous shall live by faith. There's nothing too dark. There's nothing too disastrous. There's nothing that God doesn't know and understand and want to walk with us through it. But we may not see that restoration happen as quickly in our individual lives as we would like to see it. Have you ever been in that boat? God, I need this much money. Doesn't come. The air conditioner just blew apart. Enjoy the heat. You know, it just doesn't happen the way that we think. And then we're tempted to lose faith. Well, I don't believe in God anymore. I don't think he ever really did care. Look at Habakkuk. Read Habakkuk. Soak in Habakkuk. He had no hope. He had no restoration. But God's promise was there. And Habakkuk eventually decided by the end of chapter 3 to say, I'm a righteous man and I will live by faith. I will believe even when there's no reason to. Praise God. Let's follow his example in our lives. Father, we just thank you for today. We praise you for your word. God, uh, Habakkuk is an amazing guy. We can't wait to get to heaven and hear his testimony and hear how he discovered, Father, that ultimately your restoration happened, that you sent forth your son, Jesus Christ, to be our savior. And because of that, Lord, we have a new life. Thank you that you didn't leave us where you found us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.